why it's important to have a great state plan, Beth. Uh, estate taxes start around 50%, and the IRS will say, is that cash or check? Hi, my name is Beth Anderson. My law firm is Anderson Law PC. Welcome to our podcast. And the name of the podcast is Breaking Upward because families take different forms. They might break up. You may lose someone to death or an accident. Anything can happen, but it's still a family. And so when those changes happen, I like to think you're not just breaking up, you're breaking upward. I'm a family law attorney. I do estate planning, divorce, custody, those kind of issues. And I'm here with a really great guest, John McGee. And he is a CPA and I've known him a few years and I always have a lot of confidence in his work and his advice. And so we're lucky to have him here. So tell us a little bit about yourself, John. Well, thanks for having me on, Beth. I, I, I appreciate this. I've been doing taxes probably about 40, 41 years now. No way. So I've seen a lot of different <laughs> things over the years. So, and we have a, we have a small practice, uh, family-owned firm in Wheat Ridge, Colorado. Yep, and um, so we're business associates, and I've referred clients to John, and I always like to have a good CPA to run things by. And so our topics for today are how tax relates to estate planning and also to divorce and custody issues. And we're heading into a new year, 2023. A lot of what we will talk about is timeless, but it's always fun to kind of check in on changes of the law and um, just what to expect. But before we get into that, we had a question of the day last time, which was why it's important to um, have a good estate plan. And I'll kind of talk about that a little bit more at the end, but do you have anything to weigh in on that topic? Um, it's going to go to our next Oh, actually, I Session. can be very short with that one. Perfect. Why it's important to have a great state plan, Beth. Uh, estate taxes start around 50%, and the IRS will say, is that cash or check? Yeah, they it's just out. Yeah, exactly. I don't know anyone who wants... It's well, a that's large not penalty true. if you go over that. I have met people willing to pay it. <laughs> they won't be around. <laughs> yeah. So, But yeah, that's the exception. And I think um, in 2022, that would be 12 million in up net worth. 06. For, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so what, I guess that's changing for 2023. Mm. It looks like it's, um, 12, 950 wow, for a single filer. Up. I think, I don't know. I'm looking Everybody at Everybody keeps notes. hitting that it's going to sunset at some point. But I like was scared. So, far, so good. I know. Didi and I did a podcast last year cause we were hearing down to a million and that's yeah, I think very that's hard. Low. You know, in my years experience, Beth, I think that's hard to imagine because the entire life insurance industry is built around it. We we think of the people that that we meet and sell us a, a term policy for five hundred thousand. When you start talking about the amount of state tax exposures, the people selling million dollar policies. That's what's keeping the industry together. Well, and a lot of people and, are worth a million or more, so it oh, just absolutely. seemed like the wrong number, but. Mm -hmm. Nothing came of it. It went up. It didn't go yeah. down. So there you go. After all our panicking. <laughs> exactly. So now I kind of learned, nah, take that with a grain of salt. So um, yeah, so let's get right into it. Um, we have some questions for you about how taxes affect, for example, a divorcing couple. And probably 
my number one issue or one of my number one issues is about the child tax credit. So can you tell us a little bit about that in general and then how it may have changed? The, the tax credit, well, what the IRS did in 20 and the government, particularly in 21, really pumped up those tax credits for the kids. Uh, they, they relaxed some of the laws and some of the standards on it. Now for 2022, the bad news is everything comes backwards, back to pre-COVID, uh, pre-relaxed rules. So uh, the child tax credit is $2,000 if the child is 16 or younger. Uh, in 21, it had gone up to 17, but it's back to 16 now. Uh, and then there's the $500 if they're older or still a student. Um, if it with a divorced parent, typically uh, the default you think of is everything goes to the custodial parent. Uh, the exemption entitlement is only if the if you have custody of the child uh, more than half of the year. Uh, so tends to, t those things tend to default to the custodial parent, like the tax credit. However, and this is what makes the exceptions and what keeps you busy, Beth, uh, unfortunately is in a divorce, you can have an agreement that will make an exception to those rules. Therefore, there can be a, a, a divorce agreement where the non-custodial parent may be entitled to the exemption and with it comes the tax credit. Exactly, and then you know the tax piece, so that's so wonderful for me mm -hmm. to hear because it really is a game changer in a lot of divorces. Even where there is child support, that child tax credit may be more than the child support in a lot of situations. That's, good, that's well pointed out. Yeah, there. so they'll trade yes. it. One will take one, one might mm -hmm. take the other. You get to kind of play around like a puzzle piece and figure out what works. And then if there's um, a dispute where both parents are eligible, and that is very common, mm -hmm. where both parents are providing a substantial a part of the support, perhaps half the support. Because when you think about it, that child support is supposed to be the great equalizer. Correct. So let's say one parent has more parenting time, they have a bigger expense. But then the other person's paying the child support, so that's their contribution to that expense, and it kind of equals out sometimes. Mm -hmm. So you run into this situation where um, both parents might be eligible, and that's where you come into um, the Colorado law, which is that under Colorado Revised Statutes 1410-115, subpart 12, unless otherwise agreed by the parties, the court shall allocate the right to claim dependent children for income tax purposes between the parties. So the court can decide. Those rights shall be allocated between the parties in proportion to their contributions to the costs of raising the children. And so a really common thing in divorce is that they'll alternate every other year. Yep. Or someone yeah. And then or one parent will claim one and one will claim the other and sometimes you really get into the weeds where an older child maybe it's less of a deduction so it makes sense that you trade it a little more evenly. Most of our clients aren't really too concerned about that level of detail, but sometimes it comes up. Yeah, and, and, and with that in mind, as the child gets older, uh, those education college tax credits might come into play too. So how do those work? Well, you would have to have the deduction. You'd have to have the exemption that particular year. And it's like the same thing, the divorce agreement 
can allocate that back and forth between each parent. And again, you don't have to have the custodial parent uh, eligible. The divorce agreement can say, like you said, you're back and forth. Even though the, the, the child doesn't move, stays in the same location, maybe goes to the same school, but because of the agreement, one year the parent's entitled to the tax credit and education credits if that comes with it, the other year the next parent is. Well, and I did some research that if you're getting money from an outside source like maybe a, um, a government benefit or a military benefit, like that is not you supporting the child per se. That's a third party contribution. So you can't really parlay that into that's my contribution, or at right. least that was what my research yeah, no, indicated. That, <laughs> deciding where the money's coming from and, and, and what the characteristic of it is, is what the is what everybody tends to fight over. <laughs> so even so, there's the child tax credit, mm -hmm. and then the child and dependent care tax credit. Is that the same thing, or are the those dependent, different? Now, the dependent care credit, um, what's interesting about that is the custodial parent, even in the year that the other parent, per the agreement, takes the child tax credit, um, and because of the, they're entitled to the exemption per the agreement, the custodial parent may still claim the dependent care credit because they're still paying it in order to work. So, okay. so that's one that, that even though the other one claims the tax, the children that year say, uh, they may still get that dependent care credit. Okay, so that's something to watch for. And then yeah. the earned income tax credit, how's that fit in? Uh, the earned income tax credit, again, it's, it's, it's gonna, the the amount of earned income tax you get back is going to depend upon whether or not you have a kid or two kids or three kids. So then it would be matter per the agreement, okay. which one had the child. Okay. So is it possible more than one could be eligible for that earned income tax credit, like with the other tax situations? Um, I in, you know in the in the case where you split the kids, yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, if not, I don't see how that would be possible. Okay. And then there was that kind of a rebate thing but that's off the table i'm guessing yeah there, for the there's future. there's no more in 22 but mm -hmm. in 21 and 20 sometimes what we found a lot of times beth and this was a cause for a lot of uh, problems with tax returns yep. is per the agreement they were entitled to the child even though the custodial parent by default got mailed the stimulus money right i had that come up all the time and the yeah. courts were pretty big on making parties split it Okay, and, well that makes sense and that seems fair. Yeah, because even though the agreement or the law may say it's in proportion to something, I just noticed that I think they were over it or I don't know why, but when we did go to hearing and it was yeah. contested, they'd usually say, well, you got it, so you owe them half. Yeah, and, and that I was don't very, know why. <laughs> you know what, and that was very common because the other thing that happened is when you had the, the rebate in 20 mm -hmm. and then you had it in 21, we knew that the, the non-custodial parent, that there was no way they were gonna mail them the rebate money for the kids. Gotcha. Because they had them locked in on the prior year's return right. at, with the custodial parent. Yeah, so it would come up and they were definitely on top of that, maybe not even in proportion to the amount of money involved, but it was always a big issue. Well, in that, and the other thing, if, if there's people out there that recall this, it held up some refunds. Oh. Why they straightened out who was, who was entitled to it. So, Interesting, yeah, that yeah. would be a big deal. Oh. And then, um, in family law, if you are behind in your child support, sometimes you're not allowed to claim the child. That seems fair. And it's on the last day of the year. Now I'm not a ta I'm not in your field, but uh -huh. that was my understanding. No, that seems. And so um, 
there's a little confusion there because behind in child support doesn't necessarily mean you have arrears. Arrears can happen where you fell behind, but you may go to court and they'll say, pay those back as little as 100 a month or $200 a month. You don't okay. have to pay back the whole thing immediately. It's pay oh, it okay. back in these right. small portions. And then um, as long as you're sticking to that plan, I don't know for sure, but my understanding is you're compliant. So oh, that can be a misunderstanding. So a lot of times both parties think the other person ripped them off in terms of all the children and the tax deductions and credits. And there's a lot of- I have heard that of, from a few clients. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's really common. Have you ever seen anyone go to tax court on that issue? On that issue? Yeah, about the children and the deductions. No, I haven't seen that. Uh, I have seen clients where uh, the tax return got e-file got rejected and they were just animate and not only paper file, but had to paper file it with an explanation on the return. Interesting. Yeah, yeah because I could the other, see that. And, and what it was is they were arguing custody yeah. when it was clearly laid out. And the other parent was like, hey, I'm taking them and I have that. And the other one's like, no. And like, well, the e-file will never work. The other parent always has the, the child's, well, file it by paper. Mm-hmm and put this explanation and I'm gonna do it anyway. Yeah, and then so they try to resolve, yeah. yeah. And then um, I was surprised because I have had clients go to tax court, I don't do that. Mm -hmm. But um, what surprised me the most is they got faster redress going to tax court than back to the family law courts. Oh wow, a little, bit of a, a little bit of a loophole there. Yeah, like, like an, end, an end run, yeah. yeah. Because who would think that our federal government with tax court would actually be more efficient about some of these tax disputes as opposed to- I can't believe that happens. I it mean, did, I, We it went did. through, we, we were seeing the opposite, Beth, in, in doing dealing with audits. Uh, we were getting these more mail-in audits because they didn't have audit staff to do the actual physical audits. So then they would request that you would, <clears throat> excuse me, mail in your documentation to <laughs> some P.O. box, I guess, in New Jersey. Or, sure, no, anyway. yeah. But in, there would be no response, and it would end up in appeals, and then it basically goes straight to tax court. So Interesting. tax court's docket, we noticed, particularly in 19 and 20, pre-COVID, uh, was starting to back up with just literally audit appeals. Interesting. Things that normally if you had the staff would never ever has even gotten on a docket in tax court, but because there was no audit staff, there was no appeal staff, there was no management staff, it just goes straight to the tax court. Well, in state courts, same story. They lost a lot of their clerks, a lot of their staff. I don't see as many magistrates in some of the counties. So did it just, did it just stop? Did the well, cases just back? Yeah, there's a backlog for sure. I have a case set for um, the fall of next year that we set quite a while ago. So it really depends on the judge, but sometimes there's a wait for a case to go to hearing. And by the way, I never talk about a specific client or anything where they'd be, hey, you're talking about my case, so even that one, I'm being really vague, and mm -hmm. it's actually um, multiple cases are getting set into 2023. Obviously, we're in December, but further into 2023 mm -hmm. than I would have anticipated. It's very much by the judge. So I think it's just a matter of who was the slowest. They were both too slow. Um, and of course, you can go back to the family law court and say, well, they claimed this, or they did something that wasn't right. in accordance with our agreements. And they're my ex-spouse 
and you can try to go to the state court to get your remedy through your divorce or your allocation of parental responsibilities or you can also go to tax court and in my and do, experience do it half the time yeah right? and get it yeah done. it was faster wow. i didn't and they did it pro se they i used yeah i was That's surprised funny. and they yeah. had really good assistance so you know go figure but yeah. ideally families try to work it out i was just talking to my team today about how important it is to us that after you have an allocation of parental responsibilities that means you have a kid together or children but you're not married or after a divorce please try to come up with some ways to fix your disputes without running into court all the time right it's expensive it's time consuming it's stressful so anything you can do to get a better agreement right including having a cpa weigh in <laughs> that's it have you seen cases where someone they really their income was perhaps too high or too low where they had no benefit from claiming the children um yeah well you'd still get the 500 dollars credit uh, for fetish. low yeah. yeah but um yeah we all the time were particularly with the education credits that's a good one where uh -huh. it's phased out and the parents make just too much money okay and we even had a case it was interesting we did some some kind of some shifting around uh, and some kids in 20 suddenly got independent because yeah. that recovery rebate had a, a max to it. So if you had wealthy parents, they're not going to get the rebate for their child because they made too much in 2020 to get it. Okay, it but now that suddenly, But then the kid spins out and they're entitled to file themselves. Right. And they file themselves and they got a you know, $1,200, $600 additional refund. Great. Because they got the credit. Yeah, why not? If yeah, no, and we did that for uh, we had we had quite a few that we did that on just for that very reason. Going, hey, you know, there's eighteen hundred dollars in credits that you're leaving on the table, or twelve hundred for the for the yeah, kid have that, the kids file yeah. even if they pay because you you make too much money, you're not getting anything, right? <laughs> right. right, even if they pay for the returns, or they can do it on their own. That makes good sense, and I've seen it in divorce where one parent has the higher income, and uh -huh. so they're not going to get a benefit from claiming the children or maybe it was right. the um with the educational tax credits right. and so the other parent just gets it every year right it just varies yeah i've seen cases uh particularly back in maine beth where the attorney within they would just make that part of the package and recognize that and go because you're going to always have that every year and you're going to get those education credits then i want ten thousand dollars over the years of something else interesting and they quid, would just yeah. move that as part of their negotiations yeah. i guess yeah say. like kind of a trade-off mm -hmm. i should get something else or maybe mm -hmm. you don't get anything you weren't going to get it anyway i might push back if i were on right. the other side but yeah at the end you just reach an agreement yeah That's what you're trying yeah. to do right <laughs> right hopefully and keep everybody happy yeah you can't but you can definitely try to reach that zone what, of I can live with it. Let me ask you this, Beth. What percentage of your cases are contested couples? Well, unless, they're all to a degree contested in that it's an adversarial process, so you're not both on the same team. But in terms of what they call in family law court setting it as a contested case that's going to go to hearing, a small percentage. Probably okay. I average around 10%. Okay. And I think last year it was lower than 10%. Oh, that's not, that's nothing. Well, wow. and here's the thing I always tell my clients. 
I like doing trials. I'm actually happy the day of the trial because to me that's something I enjoy to do. But I never want to do them for a family law case because it's not optimal for the family. That's not what's best. It's not setting you up for success to go into court and cross-examine each other. And it's so adversarial. It can set the whole family on a bad tone. You're also Mm -hmm. not learning how to resolve things without this judge up there doing it for you, Mm -hmm. which as ugly as it feels to make those compromises, you have control over what's happening as opposed to a a stranger. That's a great point. Yeah, and and so it sets a bad tone. I've learned that over the years that if you go to court for your divorce, you're going to go to court more after your divorce. And if you learn to settle, even though you're not happy with it, you can live with it. That sets a precedent. And in fact, I was just meeting with my team about this today. And by team, we have contractors and I have an attorney, Jacob, who works with me. Uh And um, we're thinking of reinventing how we mediate to really set the tone for not going back to court after you're divorced. Wow. It's just something that I thought of and I reached out. That's a big change. Well, I do mediation, but I don't do a lot of it. I'm not really happy how mediation goes right now. It just seems like if one party is not willing to settle, it's a waste of it's not a waste of time, but it feels like it because I, you don't I settle. I understand that. I can understand that. Yeah, and so I'd rather have a mediation model where you have to have all the information on the table and then you decide if you don't settle, you're either ready to go to court or I would love to have private judges and arbitrators on call that if anything that's not settled, okay, that's going to an arbitrator or a private judge next and week. And they'll settle it. Yeah, and they'll they'll rule. Mm-hmm. They rule like mm-hmm. a judge. Mm-hmm. And so I think that might be a better way to go so these things don't drag out. It's something I talked to the paralegals about and they were all on board with it, so it's in the works. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, a bad settlement where you're not super happy is usually better than a good day in court And then just one little side point, when you go to court and you really kind of what you might consider win and blow the other person out of the water for whatever reason, maybe the judge didn't like them or Mm -hmm. they, it wasn't their day or they weren't well prepared. That person is going to try to set things right for the rest of your life and get something that they think is more fair and they're Mm -hmm. not going to give up. Mm -hmm. So even what feels like a win in court isn't because that other person's going to try to write the scales and take you back and make you pay. It's just human nature. It's interesting, though, that you say that even a bad settlement's better than a day in court. That really kind of highlights it, Beth. Yeah, and by bad, I guess I mean you shouldn't have... That proves your point. Yeah, it shouldn't be bad. Like, if it's unconscionable, it'll get thrown out. Right. But just, ugh, I can live with it. That's what I say, you know? Right, Yeah. Yeah, just like... Is it really worth... Not just, which I hadn't thought about. That's such a good point. The court now, but the future courts you're going to end up in because you've already established a pattern of contested. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. I wouldn't have known that except for my job. I would never have thought that. Yeah, like, for sure. I would think that they'd be like, I don't ever want to see this again. We're settled. But they're just like, no, I'm not done being angry. Or it got settled unsatisfactory to me. Right. So I'm going to keep poking. Well, and things change. Children grow up. So maybe the children, this is very common. I'm not being gender biased, but they might have more time with mom when they're little. And then maybe dad gets more in the picture when they're older. Mm. That's very common by little, like maybe two years old or Mm. breastfeeding, very young. 
Another thing, people's incomes change. So you go back to court to vary child support. So do you do mostly minor amendments or do you do you see that five, 10 years later there could be major changes to it just because of the kids? The minor ones, parties can often work out. Okay. Technically they should change the agreement and file it with the court. Right. But they don't need to actually go to court to actually change it. They just yeah, they can just even file a stipulation is what I recommend. But the um, major ones is where it can get very contested. And it really just depends on the parties. Um, but yeah, that families is, That change. does sound exhausting going back to court for every major decision that comes It's along. the worst when parties can't agree and it's quid pro quo and you don't give in. I think... I call it the 15% solution, which is from Sherlock Holmes, but a whole different reason. But I think it's the 15% solution, and here's why. I think everyone overestimates their case by 10%. Okay. They think what they deserve, but really they're more biased in their favor. So That's if fair. one person backs down 10%, and the other person backs down 10%. You're in that 15% so, in the I middle. Yeah, I see yeah. What you're saying. Yeah. That yeah, makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So you meet halfway of it's giving in. It's that perception, in. right? Yeah. That, okay. I'm, I'm, That's just my theory. And I think if you're willing to dial back, um, and you pay attorneys to go to court, so just write that off the top. Why pay me? Neither to go one's going to gonna get that. Yeah. Because if you pay, if your best day in court plus attorney's fees, then. Don't pay an attorney and subtract that off what you get in settlement, and right. it's still the same result. Right, or or even better, you get half of that, and you save, you actually put more money in your pocket. Bingo. Yeah. So I don't know how you start asking me questions, but they're really good questions, and I appreciate no, them I was very curious much. The way you, you I love talked it. about that. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it that you asked me those questions because they're they're things I love to talk about. And um, I just I don't I see the tax side of it. I don't see the other side of it, which you see. Yeah, exactly. You know, I see the spouse that comes into file and and it's, you know, the, the biggest question we deal with every time we see somebody getting a divorce is the end of the year on December 31st. Are you married? Are you not? Exactly. And Tell that directs that. your filing. Exactly. So if you're still married, the divorce is not file final then you're married filing, joint or separate, but you're married filing. So the way I understand it, and you can confirm it, is if a judge is very lonely on New Year's Eve and they sign the divorce decree at 11.59 you're on you are December 31st, you you're cannot climb, file married filing jointly. That is absolutely correct, Beth. And, and, so, that, and that's the fine point to put on it. 365 <laughs> days in 23 hours won't matter the entire year for that filing. You now just became single. And I've seen judges <laughs> sign orders on no, holidays. Not on New Year's <laughs> Eve, but definitely like it's a holiday. And Do you think that was out of line on them? Like that, that was more. No, they're like, just working their butts off because they're wow. so busy. It's usually magistrates. And so I'll see an order come down like on a holiday weekend or mm -hmm. a Sunday. I'm like, come on. That's uh, when you're doing wow. it. They work hard. Yeah. They really do. I, but yeah, so that's my understanding. And so what we do as family law attorneys is we'll ask the court not to sign the divorce decree until, say, January 6th. Right. Which, by the way, dun da da divorce day. January 6th is divorce day. Did it's the number one day for the most divorces. Wow, that makes sense. But I, I wonder, I yeah, I, I think it's for being filed, actually. It, I don't know. It makes sense. Yeah. Hold it, hold it until after the year end. 
Yeah, because the holidays. I guess they don't want to file during the holidays. So we're set for our divorce Super Bowl month of just everyone's filing in January. But also, I hadn't thought this through, but yeah, we hold a lot of our divorces to not be final until January. And then I usually pick like a week out Mm -hmm. or so just to make abundantly clear. Mm -hmm. And that way they get that um, married filing jointly, which leads us to our next question, which is, how does that work out? Um, if you're divorced with your deduction, standard deduction, do you have any um, new information for 2023 or Well, pointers? you know, it's, it's um, when you talk about standard or itemized deductions with divorced couples, uh, again, you have to determine if you're married, filing separate. Typically, Beth, that's not a good place to be. Uh, the rules say that both spouses have to do this, the same thing. So if you have one spouse that says pays the mortgage and they take all the interest and the real estate taxes and all the itemized deductions, well, the other person must itemize and they'll have none left. They don't get half of their standard deduction, okay. just married filing separately. And when one itemizes and the other one says, that's fine, I'll just take my half of the standard. No, no, you will not. Because I think... I think I've seen people try to do that because yeah. I'll notice in mediation, like the other attorney in multiple situations is trying to pile on, mm-hmm. oh, I want the mortgage interest deduction. Mm-hmm. I want this deduction. I'm like, are yeah. you trying to pile all the deductions on your client? Right. And then... Oh, um, they'll be fine. They'll get half the standard. Yeah. No, yeah. no, that's not the way it works. They they have to itemize if you itemize both, both the same. And then also, could they push them over like... Sometimes they just don't want to file married filing separately or Mm -hmm. married filing jointly. They really want to file separately, even though they can. That's confusing to me because you're paying more to Uncle Sam. I don't get it. But some people are that way. Do you know why that might be? Uh, I I do. I had a recent couple, as a matter of fact, that finally got divorced. It it wasn't final at the end of the year. Um, She didn't make a lot of money. So of course I advised them to file joint, and mm-hmm. um, they were not going to do it. They were so animate, particularly he was, until I explained to them, he could sign the return, and then she could sign it on a completely different day. They don't have to see each other. They don't have to come in and sign it together. And once he understood that he wouldn't have to sign with her, he was fine with it. So that was just they didn't want to be in the same room at the same and that, time. And a lot of times that's what, I've had clients that it's funny what they still believe in, but they kind of still believe like, well, we're both going to have to sign it. Then I'll have to see her when I sign it. It's like, no, you won't. You can you can sign it with me. She can sign it with me. I didn't know anyone thought that because, of course, if they have me for an attorney, I'll tell them, yeah, "Yeah, you're never going to see that other person. Yeah, And these guys were they were trying to work it out in mediation. So they they had engaged attorneys and they had just finally just gotten them. And that's why I yeah. just said the other thing too is when that happens and I, I see that contested, it's like keep it married, finally joint one more year. That way you won't have to argue over it because both of you Good will point. have returns. Yeah. Right? And no one's going to have to subpoena a copy of somebody else's return or demand that they show it. You guys have both signed the same doc. You, you got copies of it. That's a good point. You're not going to argue over that. that. Yeah, you, I you hadn't really thought about that. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think that's um, the main family law questions I had for you. Um, do we know the standard deduction for 2023? Uh, 27,000. Okay. Uh, 700. Okay. 
So yeah, that's going to be a lot of people are going to be trying to get that standard deduction. Yeah, oh no, it it keeps going up. It makes it simpler for most families. Yes, it does. (laughs) I think some of my clients, they wanted to file separately and I don't know. I think a lot of times it was because they believe their spouse was committing some sort of tax fraud or something. Now, now I've actually, good idea. I've counseled clients to do that. And then what that does, you can file injured spouse, and everybody's heard of that, where, and basically what it is, Beth, is you're filing either a document from the past that that says, get me uh, away from this because I wasn't part of this, so don't tie me up with this liability. I've seen that sometimes I had. Yeah, uh, I counsel my clients on that, on innocent spouse relief, which is I'm innocent. They just went and did their own business and I'm innocent of what they're doing. And I've had clients multiple times file for that. And then I think, but I might be wrong, injured spouse relief is like you actually already have the liability or it's clear cut that your tax liability is not your own fault but I don't really know. Injured spouse tends to be when they've already taken part of, like say they've taken part of your refund to pay for prior debt. Gotcha. And you were in, see, because now you're injured. Okay, And you want your money back. So you you apply a form to say, hey, uh, again, and and good point, Beth, the most common example is the husband or spouse's business that the other one's like, I had no part of this. And, you know, this is for payroll taxes they got behind on. Or tax that got generated because of the profits from that business that they're like, I didn't know what they were doing. Or right. or even more so, and this is probably the most common, is the same business example that got audited mm. and found out that they were deducting things they shouldn't have and there was a large adjustment and that's the most common thing. After, after a divorce, somebody had been audited and it had been a large adjustment and the injured spouse says, I'm not gonna be part of this large adjustment because it was because of your business being audited and that additional 57,000, none of it's gonna be mine. Right, and then most separation agreements we have that if a party is responsible for the tax debts that come up later, uh-huh. they're responsible for that tax debt. If it's a joint tax debt that comes Correct. up later, then they'll, they'll share it maybe equally. Mm-hmm. That's very common. Mm-hmm. And it is very common for the IRS, I don't know if they have a code in there or an algorithm, but to reach out after people divorce and say, oh, here's what we're adjusting on your tax return uh-huh. it's almost like a trigger I could almost swear <laughs> but like yeah it. yeah I guess so to me an injured spouse relief and maybe I didn't say it the right way is that's more it already happened I was injured because mm-hmm. of something an innocent mm-hmm. spouse maybe they're going to file something that you're it's worried when you about. would file um you would file say you would say now I filed a joint return and because of some issues that you have they're going to keep our refund uh-huh and, and this was yeah. before you and I got married. Okay. I'm gonna file a form with our tax return saying return my portion of the refund because you're gonna keep Bess because she did something naughty okay. before we got married. So that's injured spouse relief because it already happened. Okay. I don't know, I'm asking. Yeah, I, know, I don't I'm, know the I, difference. I, now you're yeah. getting me co- okay. confused with I the I think there's two different, but maybe they're not the same. Yeah. But in any event, yeah, My just understanding was to watch the injured for. spouse was more, it had already happened That's and I what want I that think back. Too. Yes. Whereas the innocent spouse says, 
it's ongoing, meaning this this is our current return. Yes, you that's and me, what I think. And you yes. and me are set for the $6,000 refund because we have kids and I'm all set, except they're not going to give it to us because gotcha. you were naughty before we got married. And they're oh. going to keep it for your debt. Okay. So I attach the return saying, well, keep best share of it, but give me mine. I'm gotcha. innocent. Okay, understood. This. Yeah. Not, not injured because it wasn't something that happened when we were together in the past. But innocent because it was something you brought into the marriage. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's good to know. I didn't really understand how that works. <laughs> so um, now it we're going to get confusing. Yeah, now we're going to jump into a completely different area of the law, which is um, estate planning. Okay. And a big issue that comes up all the time is that someone wants to leave their real estate to a family member. Okay. And. If that family member, say, is a child, mm-hmm. does it? How is the best way to do it, or what is the best way to do it? I should say, should you put them joint tenants with the right of survivorship, which we talked about? Probably not. Right. And then um, you could do a testamentary deed where they would inherit the house by virtue of deed after someone died. That sounds much better. Or you can just leave them the house in your will. That sounds just as good, too. You could have a family trust or something Mm -hmm. that passes it along. Or sometimes my firm will do a combination where there's a testamentary deed that you're deeding it, that when you die, or the Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. house is going to go to the child. And also that's consistent with the will itself. So anyway, that's a lot. But can you help us unpack that? I can make it real clear. Thank you. Real simple. what you're talking about is a step up in basis uh, that the child would inherit an asset. Now, what everybody understands, and, and this is the biggest loophole in the law, still is, is if you inherited an appreciable asset, your basis is the fair market value at the date of death, right. or a, six months later if it's an alternate va- valuation. And that basically just gives people time to sell it. But basically, it's saying, if you don't inherit that asset until after death, your your basis for purposes of a gain is fair market value. You're not going to pay tax. Right. No now, capital gains no tax capital because gains. your basis, it, they're going to tax you on the difference between the value today. Like, say I'm selling a house today uh-huh. and it's December 2022 <coughs> and my basis is of today. There's no capital gains tax because those Correct. numbers are identical. And that's what it's intended to do. Where And if I inherit a house today, same thing, a jump up in basis, no capital gains tax because I inherited the house, I get the basis of the person who gave it to me as part of their death, part of their probate or what You get the current basis. Yes. It steps up. Yes. Whereas if you didn't have that, maybe they bought a house in the 40s or the 50s or 60s. Oh, yeah. And we know what that looks like in Denver right now, Beth. (laughs) Yeah. And who wants to pay capital gains tax on that? Not me, not anyone. So that's the thing. So So where it's very clear is transfer of title. Okay. And and if you gift something to somebody prior to to death, the title is transferred because you gave it to them. Now the basis is the same. A gift basis transfers on a gift. So if I give you something and then you turn around and sell it, you're going to pay the same gain I would. And that's the IRS. Again, a lot of times IRS rules, Beth, are designed 
on how people would, I guess, try to cheat him or whatever. For sure. Try to keep, yeah. keep it free. So they say, okay, uh, if I give, I can't do that because I got this huge gain. So here's the deal. I'm going to give it to you, Beth. But because I give it to you, you won't have the gain and then give me back the money. No. That's why it's not that way. Right. You can't do If you give it to somebody, the basis is the same. Now, if title transfers after they die, there's the step up in basis. Exactly. So anything where you talk about putting them on the title, even as a joint, now they have, you know, they have, uh, we would say, rights to that title. It's transferred. It's transferred so, even though you're joint tenants. So it's there still will be a no transfer. step up in basis. If yeah. you're joint tenants, when they die, their half of it would be the step up in basis. And I should, but your half was yeah. already established with their same. And I should mention for people who may not know this, because some of my clients didn't know this, there's different ways that you can title a house. So a husband and wife, for example, often are joint tenants mm -hmm. with a right of survivorship. So if he dies, she keeps the house. If she dies, he keeps the house and they own it entirely. And one of the things commonly missed, if I may, Beth, is at that moment, the other half does get the step up. So in theory, if you and I bought a house together, uh, you're married 30 years and we bought it at 400,000 and it's now worth a million, your share is 200, my share is 200, one of us dies, that half is now worth a million, half 500,000, your basis now becomes 700. The 500 step up from the half of the right, the joint tenant who passed. Okay. And then the same basis you had before. And then that makes sense because you probably acquired the house together. What if someone owns a house and then they get married and then they put their spouse on the house or their boyfriend or girlfriend? Is that a gift? Boy, that's a great question. I think that the IRS does not view uh, property transfer between spouses as a gift. What about parent and child? Uh, no, that would be a gift. And if it's a gift, it, are you capped like I think it was before 17000 that you can gift per year and Correct. you have to fill out? What do you and fill what out? That, what that cap is for that everybody talks about is under that amount, you don't even have to file a gift tax return. Okay, no, there's no paperwork okay. necessary. But what if, if it exceeds I gave, that amount? Okay, so let's say I have three houses. I give one to each of my sons. Okay. Do I need to do a gift tax return for each of them and stay under the 17000 Yes. And then what happens if the house is worth more than that? That's part of the gift. You have to recognize that. So let's say the house is worth a million dollars and you gift it to them. Yes. So the idea of the gift tax return is they have to pay the tax on the, or you have to pay the tax rather, on the million dollar gift to them. And now what happens is the gift tax return has an exemption with it. And the exemption this year is 12.06 million. Okay. And if that sounds familiar, yes. Because it's the same thing of the estate. Okay. And let me explain that because this will make it clear. The gift tax is the same exemption because you're paying the same tax you would pay on the property if you gave it before you died. Mm -hmm. If they get it after you die, that's the estate tax, right? Right, gift it. that's why it's called estate and gift tax. Correct, because yeah. they're the same form, Right. they're the same exemption, 
because it's dealing with the same process. It's just one is before you die, the other is after you die. So that's why they're tied that together. That makes sense, yeah. And they file the same. The, the gift tax return, interesting enough, is the same tax return as the state tax return. You draw down on the same exemption. That makes sense. So even though you exceeded the annual amount and you have to do a return on it, it's just going to start counting toward your $12 million or Very correct. Yeah, I guess Absolutely. it's $12,950,000. Whatever it is, yes. $12,000. Yes. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. If you drew down $950,000 worth, you'd still only have like $12 million left, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yes, it would start bringing down the amount of the state tax exemption because you've already started using it. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and, and that's why most of our clients we counsel, don't worry about the gift tax return. Yeah, you're gonna have to pay us a little money to do it, but you're probably not going to pay a gift tax. If you're someone that's worried that, you know, or not really too worried about it because you have a $24 million exemption for a married couple, then draw down your gift tax. Yeah. In fact, matter. I think I had the wrong number because I was reading your handout wrong. This is the standard deduction increase. Yeah. It's same for 2022, but are these changes for 2023? or? No, these are 2022 changes. Okay. So yeah. what is the estate and gift tax cutoff? It is, it is the cutoff. The estate tax this year the is 12.06 is what they said. Okay. And do we know what it is yet for 2023? Uh, I don't know. If yeah. I mean, we might it. not know yet because they kind of can be less. Yeah. They minute. like to, they definitely Keep like us on to bargain with that one don't they well and it's bizarre because there's no way estate planning attorneys can fix all those trusts that quickly yeah my only mine only goes through 22 yeah we'll figure it out but it's plenty you know good for you if you're in that group yes exactly (laughs) but now one last thing i would tell you that i do with i deal with the state tax i don't do too much of it and the reason being is as you could imagine if you go over that threshold think of the money that's at stake well, oh, this yeah. is where a lot of the tax law gets written. This is where the law of the exception is oh, because you know um, they're going to pay me you know several hundred dollars to file the return and and it, it's a zero. But when they have to pay a million or two in tax, they'll yeah. pay several hundred thousand to an attorney to fight that. And find oh, a way for out sure. Of that. Uh, my theory on why the tax code and regulations are so voluminous is because you make a law, pay your tax, and then the richest and the wealthiest are gonna come up with a loophole. And then the IRS is gonna close that hole and then they're gonna come up with another loophole and back and forth you go until you have a tax code and regulations that are almost infinite. And I it's believe a that's about battle. as accurate as it gets, Beth. I believe <laughs> okay, that's so about that's as accurate as it is. Yes, so, yeah, so you now right I on. So now, <laughs> yeah, so I You really understand right. it. <laughs> I started saying that when I was like back and, in, and the, in and, law school. And it's funny because <laughs> you look at volumes of the tax code mm-hmm. and how thick that is and it, the amount that actually affects somebody is, is like an index card because the average yeah. person, their just laws are just there and never changed or moved or ever because it, it, it doesn't affect the, the rich people and the poor people can't afford to pay to get out of it. So it is what it is, yeah. right? Yeah. That's it's why so the standard Byzantine. deduction does not have a lobbyist. Yeah, that's it's, why it's I think the tax rates don't have lobbyists. It's just a lot of these smaller yeah. things. They just are what they are. But there's there's nobody that can afford to pay 
to change them. Well, and that's why I think a CPA is a lot like a lawyer because mm -hmm. we're both reading law and regulations and cases and trying to figure out what applies. And I like that because you can yeah. trace it through almost like a flow chart or a writing code where mm -hmm. you're just like, okay, yep. if this, then that. And estate planning actually is the same thing. You is are it? just, yeah, because you're saying, where's this money go and how does it track? And if mm -hmm. this person dies, where's it go next? Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, it's really fun to do if you're interested in that kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. So it is very it is similar. very complicated, complex yeah. thinking though. Yeah. So um, well, now it's time for my lawyer joke of the day. So a gentleman calls a law firm and says, "May I speak to Mr. Dewey?" And Mr. Dewey. the receptionist says, "I'm sorry, Mr. Dewey passed away. He's dead. I cannot put you through." Well, the next day she gets the same call. May I speak to Mr. Dewey? And she says, no, he passed away. I can't put you through. This continues for two weeks. The same person wow. makes the same call every day. Finally, she says, okay, listen, every day you ask for Mr. Dewey and I tell you he passed away. Why are you doing this? And the gentleman says, well, he represented my wife in my divorce, and I just like hearing it. <laughs> oh, that is good. <laughs> so our next podcast is going to be on estate planning, which okay. means a will, a living will, and a power of attorney, maybe a trust. Mm -hmm. And so you already talked about from a CPA's point of view with estate and gift tax, mm -hmm. why someone would definitely need those things. But Colorado does not have an estate and gift tax, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct. And then it's several million. So most people do not have to worry about estate and gift tax, I think it's fair to say. Very fair to say. So are there other reasons why someone might want to have a will or estate plan in your estimation? Well, I think one of the things we do see a lot of is, a, is like a special trust at the near the end of life where it's merely a trust set up to hold the assets to prevent probate through the state. Um, everything's still taxed to the taxpayers, but because it's in that trust, as you know, that creates a separate entity that survives death. And uh -huh. that's how it's able to survive probate because when the person dies in the state, says if there's not a will and anything not in the will, uh -huh. We're gonna we're gonna put a pause on and uh -huh. wait and make sure that there's any not anything owed and give right. people the appropriate amount of time to file if they want a claim on it. Um, but that stuff's generally taken care of if you've got you the the trust keeps you out of that. It does because it it's not owned probate. by you, correct? Right, that's, and that's why it avoids probate because as soon as you pass, the trust continues on, and they say, okay, well this isn't no, this trust is by itself, and then. It usually has right. like a beneficiary where the assets can automatically Yeah, it vote, happens so. almost by contract of that trust itself and as opposed to probate. The good news in Colorado is that probate's very easy. Most people can do it on their own. Mm -hmm. It's not like California or Florida where it's so onerous. So it's not the end of the world if you just have a will. Um, we also have something called a springing trust inside a will where say you have children or grandchildren, you can mm -hmm. control where it goes. And by mm -hmm. the way, if you're divorced, and you do not want your ex to take charge of everything that you own when you die, and you have minor children or children that are very impressionable, you really need to have a trust for your child because otherwise your ex-spouse 
or if you weren't married, that child's parent is going to be in charge of how mm -hmm. your money that you took your whole life to build mm -hmm. is going to be spent on behalf of that child. So if you have a trust, you can appoint whoever you want to be mm -hmm. a trustee because it's your stuff. You built it up your whole life, your business, your house, your car, and even things like your life insurance policy, those don't go through a will, but you could put it into a trust. Mm -hmm. And that's huge for I, our clients. I, great example of that just recently. Beth oh, yeah? A new client in August, and her dad had passed when she was younger, and there were three uh, siblings, and a lot of the assets she got pushed out of completely in the fight. The older siblings claimed a lot of the properties and things. Uh, however, there was two trusts that the father had set up that the siblings couldn't touch because they were in her name. And Bingo. they were specific to her. Yes. And they and they were set up to take care of her regardless. And, and it was it was a nasty affair. Uh, I really believe the siblings might have taken it if they could have. There you but go. that's why it was set up. That's why it was set up that way. Yeah, it it's so important. Mm -hmm. I've seen things like that too. In fact, I have a blended family and it's very important to us that we have children from prior relationships and we yep. want to look out for each other but we also want to look out for our children and you just don't want what you own to cause more harm than good and get people fighting which i'm here to tell you as a probate attorney it can so that our was a trust great automatically example set aside in a divorce i'm sorry our trusts automatically set aside in a divorce if you that's, set one up specifically designated that's a really great question what happens with a divorce is if you have a trust now it depends on the type of trust there's a million type of trusts. that might be a slight oh, yeah. exaggeration but um not, not by much yeah by, but, by maybe two yeah so <laughs> but there are so many um different types but they the basic ones and then your will the state of Colorado and pretty much any state will take almost a pen through your spouse's name and say that they no longer have any gifts or appointments. So say, you know, two people are married, they have wills and they leave everything to each other. In Colorado, when they divorce, then the part that leaves everything to each other is almost like a pen went through it and they no longer apply by virtue wow. of law. But it's so not now it's so now it's not designated and the state pushes it through probate? Yes. But it's much more complicated. This podcast is going to go on because that was such a um detailed question, but a great question. That's often not enough for a variety of reasons. For example, there was a case and I think it was up in Fort Collins where that happened. A man and woman were married. They divorced. And so the pen went through their wills, didn't change them. They moved in together. I don't know if I have all the facts straight because I read this case a long time ago. But I think what happened is his house burned down or something. So he moved in with her. This was not my case. I just read mm -hmm. about his precedent. Mm -hmm. And then either one or both of them died. And then the children of one of them said, well, they were common law remarried because we have common law marriage. So when right. they moved in, mm -hmm. one half said, no, they never got back together. And the other half said, no, they common law remarried. And so well, that, is that set aside the part of the will that was set aside what? and now they're a spouse again. <laughs> it just got so messy. Set and aside, I set aside. Yeah, wow. and I looked at the law firms involved. I'm like, I don't know how much pe these people had, but from what I'm reading, 
meeting, it all went to these law firms. I, I can think, pretty much yeah. guarantee it. Wow. And so that's another problem. And it's much more complex than beneficiaries, life insurance, yep. your investments, yep. your 401k, your retirements, anything like that, that doesn't go through your will. And so this went to the Supreme Court of the United States that that goes to your ex unless you change your designations. I and have- if they, And if they're ex, Oh, in, unless they change? Yes, because that's not a will. Okay. And that's oh. ERISA is the um, federal law, and the federal law always preempts state law. And so right. I think it was called the Hunt case. I can't remember the name of the case, but it was $400,000. And he left it to his ex-wife in terms of he never took her name off. And so the children said, oh, no, 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 no. In his will, he wanted it to go to us, and the Supreme Court of the United States said, no, 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 it still goes to his ex <laughs> because he didn't change his wow. designation. So change your designations. That is in oh, my yeah. engagement Boy, letter. That is you really have important. to change your designations. And sadly, I've had people call me, oh, my parent did not change their designations. Does that mean their divorced ex-spouse's children because their ex died and their children hated my parent? is getting everything, not me. Yes, depending that, on wow. how it's written. That, yeah, boy, yeah, that's a attention. huge thing. So I'm really harping on that all yeah. the time with my clients, change it's your the, designations. It's the little things, isn't it? Yeah, you know, well, you can you imagine? Yeah, so I always tell my clients, you go change those designations. Yeah. That is so mission critical. Yep. So great question. The law does change it, but it isn't a panacea. It doesn't fix all the problems with right. it. So, so yeah, that took us over, but I think it was a, a splendid question. I'm happy to answer. And so now we're wrapping up and um, you can reach me. I give out my cell phone, 303-808-4794, um, Anderson Law PC. Anderson with an E, A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N for excellent. So you spell it right. And um, my website, I'm sure they'll all be in the show notes, but it's Beth Lynn Anderson JD for jurisdoctorate.com. And um, we have a newsletter, sign up for it, follow our podcast, listen to all of them. They're great. Follow our YouTube and read my newsletter. That's me. And then how about you, Mr. McGee? How can we get in Ch touch with you? Well, thank you, Beth. And thank you for having me on. I, this was a very enjoyable podcast. Uh, yes, our office number is 303-421-0220. And our website is mdataxes.com. That's MDA like making a difference in accounting nice mda taxes.com yeah and i should give my office number too 720-922-3880 so that's us and as i mentioned um families take different forms i like to use the comparison of a tree every tree does not look like a circle with a stick in it like a five-year-old drew they're all unique they're asymmetrical they're always changing but they're still trees and that's how families are they're very complicated they have branches they're not one size fits all, but there's still families for sure. And you're not just breaking up, you still are a family, you're just breaking upward. Thank you for listening.